1 Samuel 25. This little story has been kicking around my head this last few weeks, and particularly yesterday. So I decided to, to run with it this morning. It's a story in the life of David. I love it. There's, there's a, an incident here where a character just steps onto the pages of Scripture briefly and has an amazing impact on the life of David. 1 Samuel 25, let's just pray before we read from God's Word. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you for your love. Thank you for the people of God, for the body of Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for King Jesus, for his victory over death, his victory over sin, his victory over everything that is designed to oppress and to hold down humanity, Lord. Thank you that you are victorious. And Lord, we revel in your victory this morning. And we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, that we would not just be thinking, that we would not just be having our our knowledge or our minds changed, but our hearts would change, our actions would be affected, Lord, by how you speak to us. So, So Holy Spirit, come. Come and have free reign. Come and empower your people to minister to one another. Come and empower us, Lord, to to minister your grace and your beauty to this town and to the wider area, Lord, and over time to the nation, Father. We want you to use us, Lord. We want you to guide us and direct us. But, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. You told those those disciples and those other followers in in Luke and in Acts, and you said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit has come. And we ask, Lord, that your Spirit will move and will do his beautiful work this morning of glorifying Jesus in this place. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 25, and I'm going to read from verse 2. There's a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs went missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my young men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. And we'll stop there for now. 
David's life up to this point, in brief, he has been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. He has gone to work in Saul's house. He has won a great victory over Goliath, trusting God and using a sling as his only weapon and approaching Goliath on his knees. But he's been driven away by Saul's jealousy. And Saul pursued him through the wilderness and put constant pressure on him. And at that time, David was joined by a band of discontented men. And he formed them into a community, into an army. And in that time in the, in the wilderness, when David was on the run from Saul, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And he longed to be in God's house. He was on the run, he was living in caves, and he was living in tents, and he was living in the desert, and he longed to see the beauty of God. And you will read over and over again in the Psalms how David wanted to gaze upon the beauty of God's presence. He speaks in in Psalm 27, verse 4, and he says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's yearning for the beauty of God's presence. Yearning for it. And any time that he had rest from Saul's constant pursuit, David would protect the local people. He and his band of men, they were basically like an Old Testament A-team. Do you remember the A-team? Yes? Oh, it's worth going on to YouTube and just watching that intro sequence and hearing it bring back all those great Saturday afternoon memories of your youth. David's band of men were were basically the A-team in the wilderness. They were going around, they were looking after people, they were protecting people, and any time they went into battle, they would always ask God for his guidance. In 1 Samuel 23, there's a a town called Keilah, and it's being oppressed, and and David's men come to him and say, let's go and help these people, and he says, wait, let's ask God, and God says, go and help them, and he does it, and he delivers the town. But in the passage we've got to today in 1 Samuel 25, David is weary. He's getting tired. He's getting tired of being on the run. He's getting tired of looking over his shoulder. He's getting tired of the constant fighting. And he's starting to fray a little bit around the edges. He's starting to crack with the pressure that he's been put under. And he goes to, or he sends his men to this guy Nabal in verse 2 and 3 of the, of the chapter that we're in and the verses after that. And it was sheep shearing time. Now, I don't know what it's like now at sheep shearing time, but back in ancient Israel, sheep shearing time was like Christmas. It was a festival. It was a celebration. When the sheep shearers were in town, you had a party and you had a feast. It's not happen like that anymore, no. You, you should try and re, reinstate that. There's lots of celebration, there's lots of food, and it's just generally party time because it's sheep shearing time. And David wants to take advantage of this, and he wants to get some food for his men. So he encounters this guy called Nabal. Now, Nabal's name means fool, which is the most offensive thing, really, that God ever says about anyone in the Bible. If he calls you a fool, that's pretty rough. And imagine Nabal's parents... I don't think they gave him this name. I don't think they got to the, you know, the wee christening font in the, in the church or whatever, and the minister said, name this child. And they said, stupid. <laughs> you know, call him stupid. It's a nickname. 
He has such a reputation among the people in the surrounding area that he has just become known as fool. He's a horrible, greedy, selfish man who does not share at all with others. There's a great verse about him in verse 17. It's like pure Northern Ireland speech in verse 17. It says at the end of the verse, there's no talking to him. (laughs) You ever said about somebody that's driving you mad? There's just no talking to him. That's what Nabal was like, bullheaded, ignorant, selfish, greedy. He was probably in Jesus' mind when Jesus told the parable about the rich fool. Nabal was probably in the background. So David comes along and makes this request for some food. David has looked after Nabal's shepherds in the wilderness. He's kept them safe from raiders and bandits. He's kept their flocks safe. And for David to come to Nabal and say, can we have some food? would be like somebody appearing at your house at about 6 o'clock on Christmas Day and saying, is there any chance of a turkey sandwich and a mince pie? You would hardly turn them away. It's celebration time. There's an abundance of food. And it is an absolutely reasonable request. But Nabal says no. He refuses to share what he has with David. And then David does something uncharacteristic that indicates he's friend at the edges. As soon as his men come back, without giving any thought to it, without seeking God, without taking advice or counsel from anyone, he says, put on your swords. We are going for a night of slaughter. And we're going to kill everybody in the Baal's house. Everybody. We're going to wipe them out. Because he would not look after us. David is determined to just thrash him to bits. How David has changed at this point. This is so out of character for a man who faced a giant on his knees. The picture of David kneeling beside the stream to get the stones, to put in the sling, to kill the giant. A picture of prayer. A picture of relying, you know, knees beside a stream. He's praying. He's relying on the Holy Spirit. He's relying on God to fight the battles that he needs him to fight. But that's all gone. In the, in the previous chapter, David had an opportunity to kill King Saul and he wouldn't do it because he knew God didn't want him to do it. He wouldn't stretch out his hand against King Saul. They're in a cave. It's one of those comical Old Testament moments. David and his men are hiding in the cave and Saul comes into the cave because he needs to go to the loo. <laughs> so he's standing. You don't want to picture this too much. Like, but he's standing at the mouth of the cave and David and the guys are at the back of the cave thinking, my goodness me, look ever talk about and a pure prime opportunity to take out your enemy but David didn't take it because he knew it wasn't God's will for him to stretch out his hand against God's anointed king David constantly trusted God to deal with his enemy Saul David inquired of God about going to battle but now he doesn't inquire of God he doesn't care about the consequences of what he does the stress and the exhaustion And the pressure of being on the run all the time has finally worn him down. And he's now behaving in an uncharacteristic manner. He's lost his sense of identity as God's anointed. His circumstances, his emotions have got the better of him. And he's not seeking God. Can anybody relate to that? Are you all just perfect saints? (laughs) Just everything seems to be crushing in on you at once. And suddenly you're making rash, hasty decisions. And you're talking in a way that you don't normally talk. 
the weariness of battle. You know, some battles tire us out more than we realize. If you have any of the kids in school or if you've ever studied erosion or just how, how the sea bashing against the rocks will gradually wear them away and wear them away over time. You don't even notice it happening in the short term. But just this erosion going on, that's what's happening for David. He is getting eroded by the pressure of battle. It's affecting his emotional state. It's affecting physical well-being. These things that are oblivious to us, they're low level. They're not big enough sometimes to raise their head onto the radar and be attacked head on. But they're just low level, continuing niggles and knocks. And we ignore them and say, well, that's not really annoying me that much. That's not that important. It's not that big a deal. I shouldn't make a fuss over it. But it's gradually wearing us down. And David loses his joy. David is one who writes songs and sings songs. And joy is so important to him. And he's losing his joy. He's being driven by anger. And how is he going to be stopped from this, this appetite for, for revenge? This desire for blood. He's got 600 men with him. 400 are going to fight. 200 are going to stay with the stuff. And those 600 men know him. And they know his heart. And they've been with him long enough to see how he acts and how he walks with God. And not one of those 600 men had the backbone to say, David, this isn't like you. This isn't the way you normally act. Should we take a step back? Should we think about this? It's only one man. It's only one large holding of a, of a farm. It's not really the, the games we normally play. None of them had the guts to do it. None of them. 600 big beefy warrior men and none of them had the courage but then comes on the scene one of the most beautiful characters in the scriptures a girl a lady called abigail and it says in verse 3 about abigail that she was an intelligent and beautiful woman an intelligent and beautiful woman <laughs> In older, more literal versions, it says that she was of good understanding and beautiful appearance. And as I was chewing over this again yesterday, I thought to myself, how did she end up with a dingbat like Nabal for a husband? What was going on there? He is the absolute epitome of foolishness and bullheadedness and ugliness in every way. And yet this beautiful Abigail has ended up attached to him and I began to think about matchmaking <laughs> church matchmaking I thought maybe maybe Nabal and, and Abigail had them or she had the misfortune of being in the in the wrong place at the wrong time and somebody put them together have you ever witnessed church matchmaking <laughs> have you ever witnessed it going well because <laughs> I haven't <laughs> it always seems to go badly and uh, as I was thinking about this last night I felt it was an idea to tell you the table doesn't do matchmaking. All right? Table doesn't do matchmaking. And not only does table not do matchmaking, but table will not really tolerate matchmaking either. We take people seriously. This is not a primary school playground where kids go around and say things about each other. We take relationships seriously. We take singleness seriously. And we take emotions and hearts seriously and feelings and hurts seriously. And we don't play games like that. So we're not going to do that. Because otherwise you could end up with some horrific mismatch. 
and uh, the fallout could be rather unpleasant. Just don't do it. Take people's hearts seriously. You know, I, I, maybe it's because I work with teenagers, but when I'm with young people all the time and young people have relationships and they break up, I take it seriously because it hurts. It does hurt. It upsets them. It's not just a case of, oh, you're only 15. It's not a big deal. Forget about it. Move on. It's just not that easy. We need to take feelings and hearts seriously and not try to force things. Abigail is smart and she's beautiful. And in verse 18, she's very resourceful. How do you get the attention of a large group of men? Jill, how would you get Mike's attention if you really want? <laughs> Freedom. Freedom, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a, I, there was just a moment there after I asked the question when I thought, oh, should I have done that? <laughs> Look at verse 18. Here's, here's the menu for this evening in, in the Greer house. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine. How's it going so far? Five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins. There's no cake like fruit cake. A hundred cakes of raisins, a hundred cakes of pressed figs. Don't know about that. And she loaded them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead and I'll follow you. She's resourceful. She knows these men are hungry. And she's going to bring them some fine home cooking to get their attention. Smart girl. And the, the verse about her that we read there in verse 3 about her being, actually it literally says, of beautiful countenance. This is, this is the sort of the, this is one of the things I love about Old Testament stories. We, we, let, we details like this. She was of beautiful countenance. There's only one other person in the pages of the Bible, that is described as being of beautiful countenance. And it's David. It's David. And here we have the two of them together, face to face. In 1 Samuel 16, he is described as being handsome, of beautiful appearance. But David's got ugly. David's got hardened by battle and the weariness of life. And his actions are ugly. And now he's going to be face to face with beauty. And he's going to be challenged about his own heart. Before him stands the only person who is described in the same way, word for word, as he is described. You know, one person once said that the face is the index of the soul. Do you know the way, and I think maybe as you get older you get better at this, you can read faces. You, know, you can look into the eyes and you can listen to what's coming out of the mouth. But the two just don't match up. And I think as you get older, you give up trying to, to speak your way out of what your face is actually saying to people. And David, David's face shows what's in his soul. And Abigail's face shows what's in her soul. Beauty. Integrity. And joy. And he starts to see the God that he has strayed from in his time of pressure. Look at her courage. In verse 23, her courage is beautiful. It says, When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Again, we'll not linger on the image too long, but a beautiful young woman appears in front of an army of bloodthirsty men who have not seen a woman in a long time, and she's in a very dangerous position. 
The courage is incredible. Absolutely incredible. That, I think, there's, there's beauty in courage. There's real beauty in courage, isn't there? We don't see it that much. It's not courageous to just go along with the latest popular thing. And again, I see this with teenagers a lot. They will support whatever is popular, whatever is gaining a voice. They will support it and they will go along with it. That's not courageous. Courage is standing in front of 600 people who are directed on a course of action and saying to them, this isn't right. This isn't right. And I'll take the risk of you responding to me any way you want, but I'm going to tell you that this is not right. That's courage, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. One of the things that I love about the Lord of the Rings is these little, these little hobbits, these little people with their hairy feet and their fondness for ale and multiple breakfasts. <laughs> One of the things about them that is so captivating is their sheer courage. They're the smallest, most insignificant, silliest characters in the whole story, and yet their courage is breathtaking. Courage is a beautiful thing. And I think society needs to see courage. Needs to see people who will stand in front of the tide of evil and just say, you can think of me what you will, but I call this out for what it is. It's wrong. It's wrong. This town needs courage. I've got this picture in my head as I was thinking over this last night and this morning. I just got this picture in my head of, of, of people standing with their arms like that with a young girl behind them. Maybe a teenage girl, maybe not even in her, in her teenage years, because I know the problems that there are in this town. And just standing with their arms saying, no, you're not touching her. You're not touching her. We're going to stand against you and stand against your evil. You're not touching her. That's something God has called us to do, I believe. Or when people who are peddling drugs and all sorts of things come and approach young people to stand and be a wall around them. David is, you know, the, the shepherds of Nabal tell him that David's men were a wall around them in the wilderness. You know, to stand and be courageous to be a wall around people and say, no, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. And I don't care what you're capable of doing to me, you're not doing it. We need courage. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Not only is her courage beautiful, but her words are beautiful. Look at verses 28 and following. She says, Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. When she says my master, she's talking about David. Because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even if someone is pursuing you to take your life, Look, this next phrase is, is, is beautiful. I don't even know how to explain it, but I just love it. love reading it. The life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Your life is just bound up in the bundle of life that God holds. But the lives of your enemies, listen to the phrase she uses here. The lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. A sling. When the Lord has done good for my master, every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. She reminded David of who he was called to be. 
She reminded him of who he was called to be. In fact, she spoke prophetically to him. I didn't even realize this until last night. I think she's the first one to say to David that he's going to have a lasting dynasty. David gets that from the prophet Nathan. I think it's Nathan in, in, in 2 Samuel 7. Or maybe it's... I can't remember. But one of the prophets comes to him and tells him about this lasting kingdom that will never fail and never fade. And she's years ahead of the game. She comes along and speaks prophetically into his life. And she reminded David of what he had been called to do. She said to him that you fight the Lord's battles. One of the greatest distractions in life is to fight a battle that God hasn't called you to fight. And David is about to engage in a battle that he has not been called to fight and he's going to waste time and energy and resources and inevitably lose men over the head of it. Fight the battles God has called you to fight and let him fight any other battles that come your way. Don't waste your energy and your life fighting things God hasn't called you to fight. And she says her choice of words in verse 29 about what's going to happen to Nabal are fantastic. God will hurl away the life of your enemy as from the pocket of a sling. And as soon as David hears the word sling, suddenly he's back in the valley of Elah. And he's remembering a different man who approached the giant on his knees and saw God fight with him and win an amazing victory for him and for the nation. And David, who had approached Goliath on his knees, trusting God, is now bringing an army to fight a drunken fool. He's lost connection with God. And Abigail, standing, picture it, whatever way, you know, go to... Go to some scene in Braveheart or some of these movies where there's this massive force of men. And just picture this little whiff, this little beautiful young woman just standing pure in front of all of this anger and rage and speaking these words to David. And David's men watching to see what way he will respond. There's a lovely verse in Isaiah 50. It says, The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Do we have a connection with God that allows us to speak a word in season to people who are weary, who are fraying at the edges and get them back into a right way of thinking and a right way of acting? So her courage is beautiful, her words are beautiful and her name is beautiful. Names in the Bible always have meanings and Abigail's name means my father is joy. So when she goes up to David, who has lost his joy in the weariness of battle, and she says, Hi, I'm Abigail. She basically says to him, Hi, my father is joy. Is your father joy? Do you remember the joy of your father? And weariness on one side meets joy on the other side. And David is confronted with the joy that has been eroded away from him by the, by the weariness of life and battle. And as I was praying this morning in the kitchen at home, just doing laps and asking God, what does table need today, Lord? You know, t- show me how to pray for table this morning. Not just a generic blessed table and, and, and make it good and whatever, but what, what do we need? I just felt God, and it was before, you know, it was before I had processed this whole thing about Abigail's name, and I felt God just saying, table needs joy this morning. It needs joy. 
And I found myself saying, Lord, just rip the ceiling open and pour in a torrent of joy to combat the weariness. The weariness of just the constant battling. Pour in joy to your people. And David's response, again, I can picture that moment of silence as she has finished saying her bit and she maybe steps back and waits to see what he's going to do. And his response is brilliant. He says, blessed is God, blessed is your advice, and blessed are you. No arrogance. No sense of saying, do you not know who I am? You know, get away from me. I don't need to listen to you. He listens to her and he takes her advice. He hears her words. And a few verses later, he does the only sensible thing that you do when you meet a woman like that. He marries her. (laughs) No messing around. He gets her and he marries her. Because he sees a rare combination of beauty and integrity at the same time. In the world, there's a lot of false beauty knocking around. There's a great verse in Proverbs that says, A beautiful woman without discretion is like a gold ring in the pig of a snout or in the snout of a pig. <laughs> a beautiful woman without discretion is like a gold ring in the snout of a pig. But David finds a beautiful woman who is beautiful through and through in her words, in her courage, in her name, everything about her. And he marries her. And I find myself thanking God. I've got my own Abigail. Uh Because there are times that I'm on a bullheaded course of action that is fueled by weariness because I get tired. (laughs) Boy, do I get tired. And I'm just fed up sometimes of the constant battle and looking over your shoulder. And just every now and again, it's good to be confronted by beauty and a reminder that my Father is joy and my Father is beauty and my Father is courage and sometimes I just need to back down and put away my guns. Yeah, we need Abigails. Nabal comes to a sorry end. David ignores him. God doesn't. Do you hear me? David ignores him. God doesn't. Verse 36, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. David ignored him. God didn't. Whether it was a heart attack or a stroke or what it was, we don't know for sure. But God says, vengeance is mine. God says, David, I have battles for you to fight. I'll fight this one for you. You have bigger fish to fry. You have more important things to get on with. Get on with them. Don't get distracted. Trust me to deal with the Nabals in your life. So a band of bloodthirsty warriors are stopped in their tracks by a woman armed with some fruitcake. (laughs) And don't be thinking that Abigail's actions were minor. Don't be thinking that she merely saved the life of her stupid husband or was trying to save the life of her stupid husband and his relatives. She was not there to save Nabal. She was there to save David. 
She was there to save David. If someone stands in your way and says, don't fight that person, it's maybe not that person that they're really concerned about. It's you. She was there to save David. She was pivotal in restoring God's anointed man to the right path. Like Esther, she appears on the pages of Scripture just for a moment, but changes the course of history. And I'm not exaggerating, because in in 1 Samuel 24, David has an opportunity to kill Saul. He doesn't take it. In 1 Samuel 25, he is bent on revenge against Nabal. And if he had gone ahead with it, in 1 Samuel 26, he has another opportunity to kill Saul. And you better believe, if he had the taste of blood from Nabal's house, he would have killed Saul in 1 Samuel 26. But because Abigail has stepped in and got him back on the right path again, when 1 Samuel 26 comes and David has the opportunity to kill King Saul, David doesn't take it because he's thinking straight again. He's thinking straight again. He has encountered beauty and joy to combat his weariness. Imagine if he had killed Saul. His kingdom would have had no integrity, no honor in the land if he had killed the existing king. And I'm convinced he would have done it if it wasn't for Abigail standing in his way in the incident with Nabal. Her influence was massive. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are mighty. History makers are never the people you would expect. Never. They're the Abigails. They're the Esthers. What other names could we put in? Don't look to the high and mighty and the great and the good and the qualified. And for goodness sake, you can't look to politicians. It's sad to say it. David got me watching a TV show called The West Wing. (laughs) And uh, as I watch them, I see an inspiring bunch of people. And then as I watch the news, I see nothing to inspire me. Nothing. And your voting is always a case of, right, who's the least awful of these people? (laughs) You know? Who is the least awful? Who is the one who's got any sort of shred of integrity? There's nothing much to inspire you in, in those who are in public positions of leadership, unfortunately. But those aren't the people that'll change towns and villages and nations. It's the unexpected ones. It's the ones who are beautiful and simple and who are courageous. It takes courage. Anything could have happened to Abigail. Anything could have happened to her. Their courage was amazing. So as we come to praise God this morning, question for you, are you weary? You might not be weary this morning because you maybe had a lie in. You might not be physically, but are you weary just from battling? Because I invite you, to encounter the joy of the Lord as we praise Him and embrace it and let it replace that which has been taken away from you by the battles of life. But it's up to you. To, you know, it's not, it's not a case of if we sing loud enough, we'll encounter God. No, you just decide right now, I'm going to encounter God. I'm going to encounter the joy of the Lord and I'm going to praise Him. And as Aaron leads us, come on ahead, but as Aaron leads us, can you just really... Be tuned into the Holy Spirit. Be listening. Be praising.
and be ready to get redirected. Because probably everybody needs redirected. I needed redirected one night this week. (laughs) You remember that conversation? You just need to sometimes encounter joy and beauty and hope and get yourself back on track. So let's do that. Can we pray before we, before we sing?